Hello, my friends. My name is Aureli. Education Monsters is a podcast that discusses multicultural education. Good morning, everyone on Education Monsters. I'm here with my friend Shieko, and we met on italki, so she was uh, my French student, and I'm super glad to have her here. So we previously did an episode about her insights on her travel in Japan, and go check that out. It's super interesting. So Shieko, I'll just remind you who she is. So she studied in Washington, D.C. She completed her bachelor's in art in international relations. She also spent a year in Tokyo to complete her minor in Japanese, and now she's been living in in LA, in Los Angeles for four years, where she works as a paralegal. And the big surprise is she got into UCLA and she's going to start law school next year. So congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome to have you here again. Good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you today? Doing well. <laughs> What about yeah. you? I'm doing great. So last time you were on this podcast, we did not really have the chance to discuss your education and how your passion for immigration came up. So that's why you had to be back. <laughs> and uh, let's talk today about how did this passion for you for international relations and traveling, like how did it come up? Okay, so I mentioned before that I'm from like a ridiculously small town, um, very the opposite of multicultural. Um, a lot of, you know, families have lived there for generations. And um, I grew up with a lot of people who like literally never left the state of New Jersey. So it's really small and like the opposite of multicultural. And I feel like because of that, and like partially because my mom was Japanese, I kind of like had this awareness that, that you know, there was like this huge world out there that I really knew absolutely nothing about. And when I was in high school, I kind of got really interested in it at that level. I um, got really into history and, you know, studying about different countries and trying to learn more about like this huge world that was kind of around me that I almost felt like I had almost ignored like growing up for a lot of the time. I never really thought of it. And then around high school, I had like this big epiphany that like, oh my gosh, like history is so interesting. There's like so much out there. There's so many countries. There's so much just that I don't know about. And I got like really into it. Like I, I loved history class. Um, I read a lot of books about it and um, I really wanted to travel. Um, I, my family couldn't really afford to like send us anywhere and honestly my dad hates traveling so like we weren't like families that like took international vacations like growing up we didn't really go many places so um, I'd been to Japan to see my family but other than that like we didn't really travel at all so um, around that the same time I decided I wanted to travel I wanted to see all of these cool places for my 16th birthday I saved up some money from like part-time jobs and stuff and convinced my parents to send me to Japan which is how I ended up there for the summer when I was 16 and um, it kind of grew from there where I just loved it I wanted to see everything and do everything um, it was kind of this combination of a interest in travel mixed with an interest in like history and um, I decided that I wanted to study international affairs in college it kind of blew from that initially I wanted to honestly I was really interested in like diplomacy I wanted to like maybe work for an embassy or like the United Nations I don't know something in that vein but um, I decided pretty quickly that politics wasn't for me I, I don't know I didn't have the right personality I don't think for politics like for example in college I did a model Arab League which is you know like the model United Nations but with the Arab League and I hated it so so much because <laughs> there's <laughs> there was like a kind of a um this very competitive spirit to it almost and like trying to win in policy and diplomacy and like you know pushing the needs of your country or like your team ahead of others that like really didn't sit right with me and from there I kind of realized that like politics just wasn't my thing I decided I wanted to go into nonprofits like non-governmental organizations to use my international degree for that I took classes and like nonprofits I volunteered like I had internships and stuff with a lot of nonprofit organizations in college and when I first moved to LA my first job was with AmeriCorps, which is, I don't know if you've heard of the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the Peace Corps, but within the United States. So like you volunteer essentially in a, I was in a school that was underperforming. It was in Little Armenia where like I, you know, tutored kids and ran an after school program. So um, I kind of thought that that was going to be my direction. But then the 2016 election happened where Donald Trump became the president. And um, I was in a school where there were a lot of kids who were the children of immigrants or like immigrants themselves and um, were very frightened at this time when Donald Trump became the president. There was a lot of like anti-immigrant rhetoric at this time and a lot of talk about like, you know, like sending Mexicans back to Mexico or you know deporting people and like the kids were really scared it was like actually a pretty frightening time period where like I legit had kids ask me like are my parents going to get deported it was like horrifying and um I don't know I, I really wanted to be able to do something more tangible I wanted like a more tangible skill set to help people in like a way rather than just working for a nonprofit organization I wanted like solid skills and um around this time period there was a lot of I don't know if you heard about the Muslim ban in the news 
So when Donald Trump first became president, he banned essentially people from a lot of Muslim majority countries from coming to the United States, which messed with so many people. Like there were green card holders, people who were like legal status in the United States who were like trapped at airports and unable to enter the United States. And it was chaos and it was crazy. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people had a really hard time. And during this time period, like I heard a lot about immigration attorneys who were at the airport and who were like going in and offering their services for free to these people who were like trapped and like scared and didn't know how to get into their country or like what was going to happen to their status. And so, and at the same time, there was a lot of news about the immigration attorneys who were helping children who were, there was a, there's a whole lot of things with immigration at this time, essentially, where I'm um, also at the same time as the Muslim bans, shortly after there was the incident of um, them separating children from their parents at the border who were coming in from, you know, South America or Central America. And, um, you know, the children being like locked in cages, essentially, and attorneys helping them, you know, immigration attorneys working pro bono for free to help these people. And that like really resonated with me. That kind of tangible skill set I wanted to be able to like help in these types of situations. And, um, you know, as the daughter of an immigrant, my mom who came from Japan, it was, it seemed like very close to my heart, just the issue of like these people who seem scared for their futures in the United States through like no fault of their own. It was an issue that like really struck me. And then I decided right then and there that I wanted to get involved in immigration law. I joined UCLA has an extension program for paralegals, essentially. It's a class just for people who want to be paralegals. I had no legal experience or anything. So while I was still in AmeriCorps, um, I took night classes in this course to learn how to be a paralegal, essentially. And um, after that, I managed to land a job at an immigration law firm as a paralegal legal assistant, where um, I basically learned everything I know. And here I am. Mm -hmm. Mm, that's really amazing. And uh, is there anything in particular in uh, your childhood that really got you interested in more charitable causes, like social causes versus making money? That's hard to, I'm not sure about my childhood. I feel like the big like reckoning for me came with me realizing I just didn't like politics, which was the direction I thought my life was going to go in. Like I said, almost like a competition. It didn't seem like it necessarily always had the best interest of people at heart. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like playing for your own team. Whereas I guess like the biggest thing about my childhood is that my mom is Japanese like I know that I'm from two different cultures and I never really thought of individual countries as being very important where it's kind of like you know we're all I don't know this is a little bit naive but like you know I've, I've kind of always thought that like you know we're all people here I don't like the idea of like playing for a team for your country mm -hmm. so um I feel like that kind of influenced me into going towards a more nonprofit route where the emphasis is on helping people individuals rather than you know playing for a team where it seems like it is in politics to an extent Yeah, for sure. And there's also like this sentiment of wanting equality or at least equal opportunity for people, like no matter where they come from. So it's like, depending, yes. like here you came to the United States. So like, it's not fair for you to get kicked out because of some random laws or because of some random racist politicians. Right. So, right. so like a fight to, uh, to help out the justice, you know? Yes, exactly. No, it, it, it really spoke to me when I saw like all of this happening on the news um, and I wanted to, you know, be involved somehow. But um, I do think a lot like leading up to it like kind of just like led me in this direction like I mentioned you know my multicultural upbringing with my parents that kind of understanding of of not wanting to play for a specific team of not really seeing that as important that kind of influenced me into international relations in the first place and just like wanting to learn about the world as a whole and the different countries and how they interact rather than just you know how to defend the interests of interests of one specific country or entity so I feel like that kind of has all led me here yeah and it's really funny that you moved to Los Angeles like four years ago like in 2016 like the year of the election when it started getting complicated. So it's like, you know what? The universe just brought you here so that you can help out the system and help out the immigrants because when Donald Trump got elected, things didn't get easy with immigration. So did you think that it was going to get this difficult? Oh, I had, honestly, I, I knew nothing about immigration when I first started this. I know that I came into immigration at a very difficult time, um, but I only know that because I work with obviously a lot of people who've done this for a long time. I work with attorneys and other legal assistants and paralegals who've told me that like, oh my God, things have changed, you know? <laughs> um, it's even at a very simple level from like, you know, the length of forms uh, to get your green card. The forms used to be pretty short from what I've been told, but now they're like 20 pages. It's ridiculous. Like they want to know basically everything about your life. So um, things have gotten harder. And I've been told that I came in at a very difficult time. Laws change constantly, you know, because the administration is constantly trying to, the way I see it, make things harder for people to come into this country. They're trying to, you know, um, the biggest thing that is affecting us right now is that they're trying to make it essentially a deniable offense to be poor 
sure. Like they can deny your green card application if they think you don't have enough money or if they think you're going to be a public charge as in need the assistance of the government in any way, which basically translates into you don't have money. So that changed recently. And um, overall, I'd say it's gotten harder. Wait times for applications have gotten longer. Prices have gone up. Like they're constantly raising the prices of fees to become a citizen or to become a green card holder or even just get a temporary visa. So overall, things have gotten hard. And because um, a lot of uh, advocates are fighting against these things, they often get held up in the court. So the rules will change like every day, literally. It's like one day, you know, um, you have to meet this requirement to submit this new form. And then the next day, because um, advocates sued the government, essentially, it's and it's like caught up in the courts, then you don't have to submit this form. And it changes like every day. It's a big pain. Yeah, it's like each day, you, it's like you have to learn something new, but that might not be relevant for tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> That is really interesting. But like, um, can you walk us through a a regular day as a paralegal? Okay, so there's a lot of variety, I'd say, in what I do, depending on what type of application I'm working on. So for example, there are very different processes for someone who wants to come here based on, you know, marrying an American versus someone who wants to come here to work versus someone who's invested money in a business and wants to come here to monitor that investment. Um, So all of these processes are very different. And something about me is that I feel a, a very wide variety of them. That's the first office I worked at was really big on that, on making sure that um, the legal assistants were very well versed in the immigration system as a whole and like the very the different types of visas, which I think is kind of unique about that office compared to other um, legal assistants that I've spoken with, but just the wide range of cases that I worked with. So because of that, like there's a lot of variety in what I do from day to day. I guess um, the simplest one is probably a marriage-based application. So say I wake up in the morning and um, I'll usually check my emails and the attorneys who I work with will say, hey, we got this new client who's married an American. She wants to come here. Can you work with her? So I'll send her, I'll reach out to the client and I'll, you know, explain the process a little bit. I'll tell her, you know, that she's going to have to send us certain documents and fill out some questionnaires to tell us information about herself. And from there, I wait for them to return the information in the documents. I will fill out the forms that are necessary. I'll analyze the documents they give us. So for example, I'll make sure that like if the birth certificates are there, they're from the proper authorities, or if there's a passport that everything's not expired, or um, if they want to become a green card holder, I have to make sure that any work history they've reported, they had proper authorization to be in the United States. Mm -hmm. So for example, if um, you've been in the United States for like 10 years as a student, and you never had an employment authorization card and you're reporting on the application that you worked, that might be a problem. So like I look for those types of inconsistencies just to make sure that we're not reporting something to USCIS that's going to get them in trouble Mm -hmm. or like to ask them about it for clarification just to make sure that there's like no misunderstandings. So a lot of it is like fact checking inconsistencies like that in their histories and in their documents to make sure that there are no problems. Um, From there, I help with like with every application we submit, we need to create a cover letter that essentially explains the person's case and their qualifications. So with the marriage base, it's the most simple where I'm like this person married an American (laughs) here's the marriage certificate here's you know the passports of all the relevant parties you know it's it's pretty straightforward um and just explain that to USCIS with with applications who applicants who want to come here because they're extraordinary there's a type of visa you can get because like you're awesome and like you're the number one person in your field so like a lot of like we get a lot of like you know scientists and like actors who are like famous or like I'm working with an author right now who's pretty famous um then it gets a lot more complicated with explaining their qualifications so I have to explain why they're amazing Mm -hmm. so like you know this person won a bunch of awards or this person has been asked to judge at these competitions if you've won an oscar that's like an automatic you're in that kind of thing interesting wow yeah i like working with the extraordinary just because it's interesting to like kind of research them if they're scientists i kind of have to research a little bit about what their what their research is about so like i research the research and like i'll go through like their abstracts and all of that and just so that i can explain to uscis why the work is significant and why this person essentially deserves their green card so like part of what we do is like making the argument for why they need the qualifications for the green card but so do they always have the same definition of exceptional do they always have this quota of like oh this number of scientists this number of singers and actors so these numbers of uh, heroic people or does it depend based on the economy or like now nowadays we need more scientists to find like vaccines against the coronavirus we need less singers or maybe we need more of this or that as far as i know there's not really a uh, that's really interesting no but um as far as i know they don't really differentiate it based on type of 
extraordinary. It's more like differentiated based on types of visa. So for example, it's called employment based one is like these extraordinary people who are in the top 1% of their field, they'll designate a certain number of visas that they're able to give out per year for that field. And there's EB2, who are like slightly less extraordinary people, essentially, like it goes down the EB2, EB3, like it goes down in terms of like less extraordinary, essentially, and um, they give out a certain number of visas for these people per year with the EB1 in particular, just because they're so they're supposed to meet this category of being so extraordinary. I don't think that they particularly monitor like what type of extraordinary they're letting in just because like once you hit that level, you're already like you must be like in the top 1% of your field as part of the definition. It's so interesting, though. Yeah, I, I like working with those types of cases. Actually, I find them very interesting. But I, I like to think that someone is like trying to decide like what's actually like what does a country need right now? And who can we select in order to better or economy or peacemaking or maybe or skill sets? Right. No, um, there is a big argument going on within immigration right now about that, about like who to emphasize essentially. So traditionally, the United States has put a big emphasis on family reunions. So not the employment based applications, but bringing together families, you know, there's no way if you're a if you marry an American, like they, they, they will always have a green card available for you. There's like not a limit on that. They will give you a green card, essentially, if you meet the qualifications. So like that one doesn't have a limit. So United States immigration has always emphasized like family reunion, which is why like right now is very controversial, because especially under the Trump administration, they are trying to focus more on, I guess, merit-based applications, like these employment-based applications, mm -hmm. and trying to bring in, you know, more like people who are essentially like high, highly qualified, you know, highly educated, you know, with English abilities and sp special skill sets, that kind of thing. Um, so the Trump administration has essentially been trying for a very long, like the entirety of it to shift it to emphasize like the skill set, the skill-based immigrations, and it's really controversial. Yeah, because in the end, like, how can you measure those things? Because we all contribute to society differently yes that's I mean that's exactly my my thought process on it and I think a lot of other you know people who work in immigration also share this thought process that like you can't measure the potential of a person which is essentially what it's trying to do by shifting towards this merit based is trying to quantitatively determine how likely they are to succeed but I mean you can't do that especially I think it goes very much against America you know if you look at the Statue of Liberty they give us you're tired you're poor you're <laughs> you know The, um, that kind of philosophy of taking in those disenfranchised people and giving them a place where they can succeed. It seems to me to go against that entire philosophy where you're just saying like, oh, we only want the people who have already exceed, you know, don't give us your tired, you're poor, give us, you know, you're rich and you're successful. It's, it seems very counter to everything that this country was built on to me. There's something called a request for evidence in immigration. It means it's an RFE request for evidence. And essentially, if um, you send in an application, USCIS can respond to you and say, Say we have more questions or we want more documents based on the information you've given us and there's been a huge uptick in these RFEs that are just absolutely ridiculous like they're asking for information that is not qualified or required by law <laughs> like <laughs> like the most like information that's too personal even not necessarily personal but just like superfluous and not necessary and not required by law so for example something that happened to me recently that I was really really annoyed with was um I submitted an application for someone to get their employment authorization card and I submitted it alongside their application for a green card so that's very common for people to do is you'll submit a green card application at the same time you'll submit your application for your employment authorization you know so you get it at the same time you get your employment authorization about three months after you submit it so while you're waiting for your green card to be received which is a very long process you can work here essentially mm -hmm. so I submitted these two applications very recently and USCIS gave me this RFE this request for evidence that requested their receipt notice of the green card which absolutely is not required because we submitted the applications at the same time, which is completely legal. It's not required by in, in any sense of the word to give that receipt notice for the to show that the green card is pending because they were submitted at the same time. Like we how would we have access to it? So they asked me for that. And they also asked me for color photographs of the person's previous um, employment authorization cards. They've been a student here. So they had um, previous employment authorization cards from when they were younger. And I'd submitted copies like in black and white. And they asked me for color versions and like enlarged and just seems so like I don't know, silly. And because they're USCIS, they absolutely have copies of these employment authorization cards on file because they're the ones who issued it. So like, they have access to this. You have it, you issued it. But they're asked, like, they essentially delayed this woman's getting her employment authorization card by a long time because they're asking me for these things that are not required or that are, like I said, really superfluous. Like you want, you're going to delay this woman's card because you need me to give you a color copy of something you already have. It's very 
very silly. And there's been a lot of that recently. Like a lot of them, if you go on immigration law firm, uh, law blogs, which I do, or like even like Facebook groups that are immigration based, there's a lot of complaints about this, about these RFEs where they're asking for things that are just absolutely ridiculous or that they'll, they make a lot of mistakes that may or may not be intentional, I think, to um, ask for things that are not required. For example, that is I- so true. Like, you know, when I got my green card, like they put my birth in 2012. I'm like, are you serious? Like, yeah. And then you have to submit a request for a new one and that takes forever right yeah but like i never got a new green card what i got is a letter saying that here you can use that as a correction when you when you travel and you can show that at the airport and it's an official paper along with your green card with that random birthday (laughs) wrong wrong day wrong month and obviously wrong year yeah no that's ridiculous but yeah it's a pain and it's you know it causes problems for people in the future and there's been a lot of that like i had someone where um, they gave a woman a green card with the wrong photograph on it like she's like that's not me on this <laughs> that's so annoying yeah, it's you know that happened oh my god you know that happened to me during graduation ceremony you know how they take like different pictures when you go shake uh, the dean's head as you get your diploma on stage and because we we just like rushed into the stage to get our freaking diploma and they called like random names like it was not us like I got an email with a photograph of someone else like <laughs> with someone else's photo like shaking the dean's head it was like do you want to order a copy of your graduation uh, ceremony I'm like it's not me it's <laughs> not me yeah no it's a pain and um it happens it happens a lot that's that's the big thing is that the, it's just happening so frequently that it almost seems like a deliberate attempt to slow things down make things more difficult for make things more confusing for people who are trying to do this do you know why i mean with the superfluous like um eid rfe that i was just talking about for the employment authorization card um our, the attorney's theory, like I've been talking to people about this, is that, you know, they, they're trying to slow it down because it's taking too long. Um, some people are even theorizing that they're trying to slow down people getting naturalization until after the um, after the election, so that, like, less immigrants will be able to vote against Trump. So um, there's, oh but across the board, there's been, like, a, it's been very difficult for people, like I said, from people trying, increasing the price of um, the application fee to making the forms longer and more complicated to just straight up making more requirements for people to meet to get these visas green cards just across the board it's gotten harder i feel bad like that's giving you more work as well yes absolutely no i complain so much about that where um <laughs> especially with the whole i mentioned the rule where people essentially could get denied for not having enough money to prove that people have enough money like i have to give like a year's worth of their bank statements and their tax returns and their w-2s and like their credit reports and it's just so much work to like get not only receive these documents but to have to analyze and make sure there's like nothing weird in it it like tripled the amount of work for a green card application i'm gonna say it's so much and do lawyers get paid per hour not with immigration typically with immigration there's typically a flat fee for Mm -hmm. you know for example we'll do your employment authorization card or we'll do your green card for a set fee so immigration is like a rare lawyer field where they don't charge by the hour Mm -hmm. yeah that's good Yeah. Although on that bill, my attorneys ha- did raise. Um, they included a new price for that. Um, there's that extra form that has to go in for the to prove that you're not poor, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, I mean, but the, like then that makes it harder for people who are you know trying to apply for this because not everyone can afford attorney's fees. It's it's expensive, and you know not everyone has access to legal help when applying for their immigration things and with how strict they've been analyzing all of these applications, it, it's it's getting harder to do it by yourself. So it really does punish people for not having money. Yeah, do you think a lot more people will do it by themselves then? Um, I'm, I'm not sure how common it's going to be, in, but I feel like there is an incentive to do it by yourself just because attorneys have been forced to raise their fees based on how much harder it's become to do these applications and how much more analysis has to go into it. So obviously with that rise in price, there's only so many people who can afford to, to do this. And there are also, you know, the immigration process isn't just a one stop and done. There are usually a lot of steps. So for example, you get your employment authorization card, but you'll have to renew that employment authorization card. And, you know, that's another attorney fee if you want them to do it for you. So are you going to try and figure it out yourself? You know, those are sacrifices people are going to have to make because it's expensive. Yeah. And it's like, you cannot really afford to mess that up. Like, even if you make an honest mistake, it's like, it's preferable if you have it right the first time. Yeah, exactly. It it takes time, especially with something like your employment authorization card. If that something gets messed up with that, how you, you can't work here. You know, if you don't have a valid employment authorization card that comes in in a time 
timely manner. It's, it's frightening. Like I see a lot of people with how long it's been taking recently to get these who are scared. They're like, you know, I, I need to keep this job. Like I can't, I, I gotta, I can't not work. So it's, it's, it really messes with people's lives. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's a very dark time for immigration, I'd say, unfortunately. It's interesting, obviously, dark times make for interesting studies. There's a lot to see and there's a lot going on, but at the same time, it's really frustrating. Yeah, for sure. So have you heard of this petition for Justin Bieber to not have his green card? <laughs> Like some Americans, yes, yeah, Americans are so pissed. They're like, please sign this so Justin Bieber doesn't become American. <laughs> I've seen that. Honestly, I'm sure he'll get it. He, I'm guessing he's qualifying for the you know that top one percent. But as someone <laughs> like with that level of fame, he's he's probably gonna get it. I'd be surprised <laughs> if they deny that. <laughs> I thought I'm a Justin like, Bieber fan, but <laughs> yeah, I thought it was like really funny. <laughs> I, 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 no, I agree. That is that is. I've, I've seen that listed in the news. It is funny. <laughs> I'd be surprised if he didn't get it, though. Yeah, we'll have to check out what's up with yeah, that. Yeah, we'll have to see if he got it. <laughs> so what led you to the decision of applying to law school? Well, I guess it seemed like the natural, like, next step to me, essentially, where um, I started I started working as a paralegal with no prior knowledge of the law or the immigration process or anything. And I, I went in, you know, absolutely cold and had to learn on the job. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked the people I worked with. I liked researching the different types of visas and explaining why people deserve these visas. I liked a lot of it. Um, the first job I had was, I'd say, really difficult. It was one of those offices where um, the workload was pretty high and there was a lot of emphasis on figuring it out yourself. So um, even though I didn't have any immigration experience, I kind of had to like delve into it and just like, I don't know, see what I was doing, even though I was faking it most of the time. Even under those conditions, I liked it. And I decided that that was a pretty good sign that it was something I wanted to continue with. So going to law school seemed like the logical next step in furthering you know, the, those goals of being better able to advocate for people. Like, and besides UCLA, did you have a, a particular law school in mind, like a, a different mindset? So you live in California, which is a pretty uh, liberal state. So yeah. would you be okay going to law school into a more conservative state, for example? I've considered it. I feel like it would be difficult for me. I'm initially from a very conservative area. I've mentioned like where my, my hometown is like, you know, there's Trump signs everywhere. It's pretty conservative. So I don't know if I could go back to that is essentially my thought <laughs> process it's hard it's hard for me like whenever I go home and see all of that it's hard to go back once you've you know lived in LA which is like the most liberal place mm -hmm. to go back and see and deal with all of that so it's, it's hard part of it was um I, I I wanted to go to UCLA that was actually my top choice school so it's always seemed like a kind of pretty clear path for me honestly how long did your UCLA extension program last it was uh, about one year so um I started about halfway through my um year of service with AmeriCorps and then I got hired for I completed the program so like I got hired after about I halfway completed the program but I still completed it like after I was still working so I would like it was an evening program so I could go to work and finish it still and how long did it take for you to prepare the LSAT oh my gosh so the LSAT I had quite a journey with I took it multiple times I took it three times which I mean was a lot because it's expensive the first time I went into it I feel like I kind of underestimated the LSAT where um I I bought some textbooks and I studied a little bit but I didn't do too much for it and I didn't do great like I didn't do well enough to get into like a UCLA type school. So um, the next time around, I studied more and still didn't get like that. Because UCLA has a pretty high like average score for LSAT. So um, I was trying, since I knew I wanted to go to UCLA, I was trying to at least hit that average score. So I didn't hit it the second time either. And then finally, like I, I gave up and like I, I got a tutor. Like I'd been trying to save money because it's really expensive to go to classes and like just taking the LSAT in general. Like this is a huge complaint I have is that I considered going to law school like right immediately out of AmeriCorps instead of like working first, but I realized I couldn't afford it on my AmeriCorps budget just because taking the LSAT is like hundreds of dollars. And if you want books, it's more hundreds of dollars. And if you want a teacher, it's like more hundreds of dollars. So it just seems like there's such a high barrier to even being able to like take that test to get you into law school. That's a huge like complaint I have with the system almost is just how expensive it was. You know, get I got a tutor and I got the score I needed to get into UCLA, but I think I was only able to do that just because I have a job that, you know, paid me enough that I could afford to like throw tons of money at a tutor. And it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, can you tell us more about the exam itself and how long does it last and what are the subjects in it? Oh my gosh. So the um, ELSA is, I don't know exactly how long it takes. There are five sections that are like 35 minutes each. So there's a section on essentially, it's called logical reasoning, where they'll give you essentially a statement and you have to find out what the, either a logical connection between it or a logical fallacy. So they'll like give you a statement that this politician said and said, that, and they'll be like, this politician is guilty of, 
you know, which type of logical fallacy. And, you know, it's like he falsely compared two things that are not similar <laughs> or um, he's over-exaggerating something that doesn't really relate. You know, it's, that, it's those types of things. It's hard to study for because it seems almost very arbitrary and the questions are never the same. It's not like memorizing formulas or anything. Every question is going to be very different. There, I mean, there are certain types of questions and there are patterns that you can learn, but it's not like, you know, I said learning a formula or math or anything like that. So it's pretty abstract to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one section, logical reasoning. Then there's logic games, which I really struggled with, which are like puzzles. So for example, a really common one will be like, okay, there's A, B, C, D, and E, and they're all standing in a line. And A can only stand next to C, and B can't stand next to D, and A and B are always together, like that kind of thing. So there's like puzzles. And then it'll be like, so C is standing in place two, where is B? And like those types of questions, it's like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled with that. Honestly, that's the section I struggled the most with. I'm bad at puzzles and that there's that type of thought process in general. The third section is reading where, I mean, that's really hard to study for. It's like you read a, you read a passage and then they ask you questions about the passage. You know, it's how do you study for reading? Really? It's kind of hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, there's reading. And then there's a fourth section writing. They've recently changed it. So you can take the writing section at home. So like the first time I took it, um, I, I had to like write after like, you know, hours of taking the test, I had to like write a, a question and I was so over it by the end. I like, I didn't even care what I was writing at that point. <laughs> so um, there's writing and then oh, there's always, um, uh, they always double up. So I said, there's the three main sections, there's writing and then there'll always be an experimental section. So um, they'll randomly give you another one. Mm-hmm. So it's a pain in the butt and it's long. And the, but the big thing is that it's, it's also fast. Like you have, there's like, I think it's, I forget exactly. I'm exactly. Exactly how long it is, but I think it's 35 minutes per section. Most of the time, there's like over 20 or almost 30 questions per section. So it's like you got to do a question a minute. It's very high speed, which is, I think, the hardest thing and the thing that most people struggle with on the LSAT is that you just have to think very fast. There's very little time for like to doubt yourself or to double guess or to double check your answer. So you just got to like go for it if you want to answer all the questions. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this exam in general? Do you think it's relevant to be a good lawyer? Or do you think it's just like a matter of uh, how can we select those people so that? we are pretty much certain that they're not going to be dropouts. I honestly read several articles and stuff on this because I was pretty upset with the process when I was first taking it, just being like, what does this have to do with being a lawyer? Why do I have to do this? Like, what is what is this going to do for me, essentially? Like, what can a test tell you that my GPA from college, you know, four years of studying can't tell you? Why do I need to do anything extra? I've read that the LSAT, like higher scores do tend to correlate to better performance in law school. I'm not sure if that just says something to you know, the tenacity of the students, you know, the willingness to study and like make it happen. I'm not sure if that's really the relation, but I have read that there is, you know, it is more likely that they'll do better if they did better on the LSAT. So, I mean, there might be something to it. The ability to like reason and to act that fast, I do think is probably useful to a lawyer. Like it's essentially, it's it's testing your ability to be able to read and analyze very quickly and at a pretty high level. I do think that those skills are definitely necessary for being an attorney. I don't think it's everything. I think it's hard, like I've said before, to like quantify someone's ability like that, which is a essentially, you know, what these types of standardized tests do is taking someone's abilities, their education, and like kind of trying to narrow it down into a number. So um, I don't personally like that. But you know, I'm sure that there's some merit to the skills that they're testing. Yeah, cool. And so what are you looking forward most, uh, the most in law school? I'm really looking forward to being able to join like the immigration councils, the UCLA in particular has like organizations where you can actually assist people while still in law school. And I'm looking forward to just straight up joining the immigration one right off the bat and trying to actually be able to you know help people as a law student it's a different level than being just a paralegal so I'm I'm really excited for that Mm -hmm. would you be able to still keep your job as a paralegal as you go to law school I don't think so honestly and UCLA in particular says that they want their um, especially their first year students to you know focus on school and not have jobs I think with the class schedule and the homework schedule that I'm anticipating it would be really hard to have a job which um contributes to the fact that you know the loans are so high for law school, where um, not only am I taking out loans for the tuition, I'm taking out loans for essentially my living costs for the next three years. So like, yeah, because they're anticipating that I'm not going to be able to work. So the, in, inside the loans, there's also living costs included. So it's, you know, my rent for three years and my food and all of that. It's really ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a lot. And uh, do you think that working in nonprofits later would make it possible to reimburse your loans? And do you think it would be worth all the, the money for tuition? You're asking the biggest question of my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. I like to joke about it that like with all the, you know, the, how expensive law school is that I'm definitely trying to, I'm working really hard to be the type of attorney that doesn't make money. So um, I, I definitely anticipate it being a struggle. We'll see, you know, what I make, what type of employment I'm able to get in the future. I know UCLA ha does have a very strong network of alumni and a very strong job recruiting process. So I'm hoping I'll be able to find something that could at least allow me to survive and, while paying back these loans. Um, it will be difficult if, you know, worst case scenario, I might have to work in a more traditional firm for a little bit to try and pay back the loans. I hope that doesn't happen, but it is going to be an option once I have a law degree. What are you going to miss the most about being a paralegal? I miss working with the clients. It's really cool to work with so many people from so many different places. You know, I don't think there's a lot of professions where you'll so consistently see people from like all over the world. Like I'm constantly talking to people from like Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and like China and Mexico. Oh, try, try to become an italki teacher. I guess that's true too, yeah. <laughs> so I guess we have similarities there. <laughs> yeah. High five to that. That's true. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's great. You know, it's very interesting. <laughs> no, um, I know. It's the favorite part of my job too. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's cool, right? <laughs> so um, that's where I am with that. I, I, I will miss it, honestly. Um, I have a pretty great office environment and I, I'm not going to lie, I love working at home. So that's been pretty cool <laughs> since it started with COVID, um, being able to do all of this essentially while wearing my pajamas. But not going to lie, I'm loving the working at home, loving the pajamas. So after studying for four years in international relations in Washington, D.C., are, are the elements in your courses that helped you out in your current jobs? I think that there is um, a decent amount of overlap between the international relations and the immigration law, because I feel like the immigration law is almost an applied type of international relations to an extent. Um, the biggest, I'd say, help probably is um, with asylum cases. So in an asylum case, part of what you have to do is prepare what's called a country report where you essentially explain what's going on in the country the person is fleeing and why it is no longer safe for that person to be in that country like what circumstances have led to that so um it's, it's essentially a history report at that level and um i feel like the fact that i've taken international affairs that kind of goes through the history of a lot of these countries broadly or a lot of regions broadly has allowed me to have like a better understanding of you know certain conflicts that i should be looking out for in these types of conversations and like given me a, a heads up on like what type of information I should be looking out for like you know what to delve further into because I have a kind of broader understanding of like regional conflict and all of that yeah definitely so there are some civil wars and there's also some persecutions like what are the most common cases one would seek asylum um I mean I don't know if it's the most common overall but um in my office we had a lot of people who were Shia Muslims fleeing from Pakistan which is very common I just because there's a lot of um, discrimination against um, the Shia minority in Pakistan from what I can tell and a lot of people who I've talked to from that region obviously don't feel very safe. Um, a lot of them have names that are very specific to the Shia religion, so it's easy to identify them and easy to kind of pick them out for persecution. So um, we've seen a lot of those in my office. And uh, as, a, as someone who's persecuted, do they also get extra help, like besides legal help? Like, do they also get some counseling and also some programs that can help them uh, also deal with some trauma that they may have lived? Um, that's probably going to be more in the nonprofit realm rather than something the U.S. government is going to give to them at that point. Um, there definitely are a lot of organizations in the United States that do, you know, cater to that specifically and helping them, you know, find housing and um, get settled in here essentially and dealing with any kind of that type of emotional trauma. There are organizations that exist that specifically do that. Um, in terms of support the United States can give, I think the biggest thing is essentially that you can, once you've applied for your asylum, even before it's been approved or anything. So once you've applied, you can get an employment authorization card, which is, you know, there's only so many ways you can get one of those in the United States. So that's one of them. And you can work here essentially while your asylum case is pending. In the past, that's been many years. I've seen clients who've been like waiting for five plus years for a judge to review their asylum case and tell them whether or not it's approved. But during that time, we've been able to work here and essentially establish a life, which I think is great. Another new thing we've seen pretty recently under this administration is them trying to essentially shorten these wait times. But I, I feel like it's kind of like a double-edged sword because it means that people aren't going to be able to work here for very long. Is if it's just deciding very quickly whether or not to throw them out so it doesn't give them that chance to stay and work here for an extended period of time that's changed recently. But like when someone opens an immigration case, they can also choose to have a different name, like an American name. What are your thoughts on that, about changing their names or their identity to fit more of an American name? I think that's a very personal decision. Um, I know what you're talking about, like within this, typically in the, especially right on the citizenship application, it's like right there on the front, 
is do you want to change your name yeah i don't know i mean our the united states has kind of a long history with that right from ellis island where people would come in and um you know because the people analyzing their applications couldn't pronounce their names they just give them a random name or an incorrect name that kind of <laughs> yeah. they were able to pronounce yeah like our america has a long history with that so obviously i think it's very sad if it were to you know continue in that manner obvious i also think that it's a very personal decision you know it is kind of difficult to have a very ethnic name i'm, I'm speaking only from slight experience like chaco is different like I, I give a different name at starbucks i give Teresa, which is my middle name when i go to starbucks because usually can't pronounce chaco so i mean that's a very small example of it but for people who've literally experienced persecution based on having a shia name i can kind of understand where the desire might be to start over and wipe that wipe that slightly clean but i do think it's sad if anyone would feel the need to do that here in the united states you know to kind of conform or to fit change to fit in a little bit better mm -hmm. yeah definitely so i forgot to ask you that on the first episode but uh what's the meaning of chico oh chico okay so uh, it's my grandmother's name my mom named me after her mom and it literally means um wisdom child so um the kanji uh, in japanese like names are given based on how they're spelled with chinese characters so you can have different meanings for a name that's pronounced exactly the same like my grandmother's name was 1000 branches in based on how it was written and even though I'm also Chieko it's um wisdom child but I really I really like the name that's really original I like it too thanks I appreciate it <laughs> cool I forgot to ask you like uh, is there a purpose for you to learn French uh, for your immigration work I mean I obviously would be helpful any language I think is helpful in the immigration field but I that's just kind of a personal goal of mine at the same time is I, I like languages um, I've always kind of lamented the fact that I didn't learn Japanese very young so my Japanese despite like I'm conversational is not fluent so I I've always wanted to get better at that. I study Japanese a lot. Um, I like languages and I wanted to add another one to my repertoire, I guess. I also wanted to pick one that was a little closer to English just because Japanese is so different that it's really hard to learn. So French seemed like a good option. Also, my boyfriend speaks French like I've mentioned. So I have someone at home who can like tell me I'm saying things wrong and like kind of practice with if I want to. And plus like the French does not have like a bad history with the US. So they wouldn't give them a hard time to immigrate versus But someone from uh, other countries that might be more polemic. Yeah, no, I I'd say that it's like really hard if you're from India to honestly come to the United States. They tend to, I say, view those applications a lot more strictly. Just because I don't, I, I mean, partly race, I'm sure, has something to do with it. Also, there's a lot of applicants from India. So, for example, um, one of like the veins of my existence is I had this case who was um, a scientist who I thought was very, very qualified. He was from India. Um, he did like mechanical engineering and he was, like I said, very qualified. He had a lot of articles published and had a pretty long history of working with like big companies on the mechanical engineering thing so my thought he was very qualified for this extraordinary ability thing and he got denied and at the same time I was working on another extraordinary ability application for a client from England so you know a white person from the United Kingdom from Europe who um, I didn't think was very qualified she was like a journalist who did a lot of like trashy journalism you know about like celebrities <laughs> and stuff <laughs> And like, I was, I, I was like, no, this person is not qualified. Like she's not, she's barely a journalist and she got it. And like that, I don't know, that really changed my thought process about like just how they look at these applications and how they view these people as extraordinary. And I definitely think being from a European country helps you. And does it make a difference if you apply through one state or another? At the end of the day with immigration, the thing that's frustrating is that it's just a person reviewing your application. You know, it's very subjective. There is an immigration official who will look at that application and, you know, maybe they had a bad day and they just want to take it out on someone or maybe they're in a really good mood and they're like you know what like let's give this person their green card um so it's very subjective at the end of the day so there are news that like for example california is a little bit more inclined to be flexible with the with the immigration but um I, i'm not sure exactly how true any of this is because at the end of the day like i said it really is just a person reviewing these applications and making that decision you know about is this person extraordinary is this person qualified for their green card and it's really frustrating and that it's so so, so subjective mm -hmm. do you do we happen to know what's the ethnic diversity of those reviewers are they mostly white people or are they from everywhere I, that i don't know actually i i would like to know that i should look that up you know at the end of the day the legal system is subjective it's not like Like math you can't have it there's not like exactly a right or wrong answer it's just people deciding <laughs> these things and that's kind of crazy to me exactly so it's like how do we move the bias viewpoint and how how can you make it as impartial as as it can be it's a good question <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating thing that I think everyone in the legal profession probably has to deal with just that, how subjective it all is at the end of the day. And it's something I constantly have to tell my clients where they're like, hey, what's like, what's, what do you think the odds are of me getting this? Or what are the percentage? And that's like something really hard to give because, you know, it's just, I don't know the person who's going to look at your application, like how they're going to feel about that. You know, maybe, like I said, maybe they had a bad day. <laughs> they're in a really good mood. It's, it's, it's really hard to tell. They have better chances if you get married, for example, versus if yeah. you apply uh, through a work visa on your own. Yeah, yeah. No, the marriage visa tends to be like the simplest one in that it's very, it's very easy to prove. That one is not exactly subjective. It's like, did you marry an American? <laughs> I mean, there's still, <laughs> there's still a level of subjectivity to it. You have to prove that the marriage was valid. So for example, we also have to often submit proof that they're together. So, you know, joint bank accounts, um, joint insurance, that kind of thing, joint rent agreement, just to show that like they're living together, that they're not, it's not just a green card marriage. So it's not, a, it's not completely objective, but it's more objective than a lot of the other cases, just because it's easier to prove. Like there are very concrete things you can do to show that this person is married. It's like, it's, it's an easier thing to prove. <laughs> Yeah, and how common is it that they come and inspect you just like, you know, they look at the, like they come, they show up to your place and they're like, is there hair in your shower? Do you really live here? Well, they ask a lot of questions. Oh my gosh. So um, there's an interview, like if once it gets approved before they give you the green card, there's an interview. And at that interview, they will essentially play like, you know, the newlywed game with you. They'll ask, they'll like put you in different rooms and they will ask you questions about each other and make sure that it matches up and that it gets right. And oh my God, I saw someone get denied. What's the color of the toothbrush? Like, that's exactly what I was going to say. They, um, one of, I, I saw someone get denied because they asked these two people like what the countertops in their apartment were made out of and they had different answers. And like, I don't know what the countertops in my apartment are made out of. And like, they literally got denied because of this. It's really, it's, it's tough. I mean, that was something really, I think, extraordinarily like a stupid denial and we, we, um, we appealed it. But, you know, it's just, that's what can happen if you get an interviewer who feels like being like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do you feel about that show 90 Day Fiancé? I've actually never seen it. I know the concept of it. It's essentially they bring over a stranger for 90 days to see if they'll fall in love and get married. Is that it? You have a couple that met online or a couple that, you know, met through long distance and then uh, they, they film. So them. they know each other before it started. Then, yeah, they know each other before it started and then uh, they're trying to live together for 90 days and see if they'll end up getting married and like what are the dramas and in the end you see like people's genuine motives like is, are they really here for the green card or are they really mm-hmm. here out of love that's interesting um uh, like i said i'm aware of the show i've never seen it i think that anything that raises awareness about the immigration process in general is pretty good just because most americans who've never had to deal with it don't understand how hard it is to live here like even me with my mom who is here on a green card i had no idea like how complicated and frustrating this process was and for most americans you'll never have to deal with it like you don't know and for the people who say you know like why don't you just come here legally or like you know why why are people coming here illegal i just feel like they don't understand how expensive and difficult and time consuming the process it is um so i feel like anything that raises awareness about you know how complicated it is is helpful at the same time because uscis i mentioned is already so like skeptical about people and trying to prove that like you're not married because you didn't know what the what type of counters you guys had <laughs> um I feel like a show that kind of, I feel like the, a lot of the drama would probably come from showing that they're just here for a green card. I feel like anything that shows that like people are only trying to use the system to get here legally is might be a little bit dangerous for the process overall. Yeah, they might because, take on something like, oh, your great uncle did not pay the taxes in 2007. So like- They can find like- really weird stuff to get you on. Like I had someone um, in my old firm who, who was at the last stage of his green card process. And like at the interview, they um, were like, oh, we found out that you, like used a different name at some point in like years and like 20 years ago and you never reported that name and like like ice came and like got him and it was a really big deal like they were they tried to arrest him over this and so it it, it does get very intense um i'd say that that level of intensity is rare but like they can if they want to essentially they can choose to like find something small and just nab you on it if they really want to yeah like you said like those people are human they may have had a bad day and yeah they're human become someone Mm -hmm. and that's the most frustrating thing is that it's just people trying to do this process yeah for sure so how do you see the future like in 20 years do you think that it's going to be computerized at some point where computers can be unbiased and have more information that than a person's judgment i don't know if 20 years is enough time to get that to that level especially with certain green cards so for example like um, I'm, i keep bringing up the marriage base just because that's the easiest one to prove i think if that might be able to do you know it could probably analyze like records and say like oh does the person have a joint bank account do they have a joint lease agreement can like do they have text messages to each other showing 
showing that like hey I love you like that's another thing we submit is like love letters like legitimately we'll submit love letters and like pictures of them to USCIS to show that they're a real couple <laughs> um I think a computer could probably do that maybe if it were more advanced to an extent just like prove that these documents are legitimate and exist I think mm-hmm. that with certain cases but in particular with the people who are extraordinary where we very much have to lay out a concrete argument for why they're extraordinary I think that that's something very hard to analyze via computer like how is a person extraordinary how do you know if they're the best in their field given the wide range of fields that could be you know it could be someone who's a doctor or an actor or a journalist or a scientist like there's just such a wide array of fields you could be the best at in it's very hard to I think analyze that really quantitatively yeah like you said if they're also looking for proofs of love I think that also greatly depends on your culture you know there are some cultures that you don't express your emotions very much or you sleep yeah. in different bedrooms because you care more about sleep than about intimacy and it doesn't yeah. have anything to do with your intimacy but just about your sleep quality and yeah. also like some people who may not say the words I love you may not display that like verbally but they display it through other things like acts of services or just spending time together and not necessarily display that informatically yeah no it's definitely true that um even like i said with marriage base which i consider to be the easiest there's so many variations even within that little one of like you just brought up of different people are different (laughs) you know there's also the problem with um we i've I've seen a lot of like arranged marriages which is common in a lot of cultures where usas gives that a hard time as well but that is the cultural practice and it makes it very complicated and proving that it's a legitimate marriage if it's an arranged marriage because they don't have all of these things i'm talking about like they don't live together if if they you know are getting an arranged marriage and they don't have love letters and like all of this stuff it's very it's very different and it's very hard to prove yeah Yeah. that's right like love marriages are not that uncommon especially in india like it's a big deal that your family approves of your partner so like they would pick that person for you yeah no we have a lot of um that from like india and um pakistan i've had some clients who um where they're they're arranged marriages and i'm sure they're legitimate marriages you know culturally and traditionally but it's hard to prove by the standard uscis once because like i said they don't live together they haven't lived together they don't have you know they might not have known each other for a long time so they don't have like pictures of them on vacation doing cute things together (laughs) so it's different yeah it's october 18th today so we'll see uh in almost two weeks uh how the elections will come out all right go out and vote everyone if you're in the united states is that your last advice of the episode i'd say that's pretty good advice to end on i was like this is the best advice ever go yeah (laughs) okay i'll thank you so much for being with us on this episode and for giving out the advice before i even ask you (laughs) i hope you have a great night you too thank you thank you thank you again for your time thank you this was fun i like talking to you okay bye If you love the podcast, you can check out my blog, Education Monsters. It's education-monsters.com. You can also support my project on multicultural education by donating on my Patreon page. The link is posted below. If you make a donation, you could have a shout-out on my next article or podcast. You could also choose the subject of my new article or podcast. And if you need French or English lessons, meet me on the italki platform. I'll put the link below. Shoot me a message as well if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast. And may today be the best day of your life. Bye.